Uh, we use the lectionary, which is um, a, a set of scriptures on a three-year cycle that cause you to go through kind of the entire story of scripture. You, you touch on uh, a little bit of every book and you kind of move through the whole thing. The lectionary has us in the book of Colossians for the next four weeks. And so I decided we'd kind of focus there. And so if you want in your own um, devotional life to read through the book of Colossians, it's, um, I think it's four chapters, a fairly short book and uh, really accessible, really lovely, um, yeah, just a, a really wonderful book to read devotionally. So, um, yeah, pick it up this week or over the next four weeks as we um, spend some time in the book of Colossians um, together. I want to say just a few things to set up the book, and then I'll read the text, and then I'll just have one point to make about the text this morning. Um, the letters from Paul are written to the first communities to be moved and then transformed by the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is one of those letters from the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote other letters that we don't have. At the end of Colossians, he talks about the letter that he wrote to Laodicea, and he says, hey, if you get a chance, you should read the letter I wrote to them, and you guys should swap letters, basically, and make sure you read what I wrote to each of your churches. Unfortunately, we don't have a book called the La- I don't know. I don't know what it would be called. Laodosians, um, Laodiceans. Uh, we don't have that letter, uh, but the letter that, we, that was sent to the early church community in Colossae, we do have. It's a part of Holy Scripture, and I think sometimes that works against it. It feels a bit too sacred to be relevant to us. Paul's words to the Colossians have been in, read in cathedrals for thousands of years. But before it was read in cathedrals and called sacred, it was personal and real and relevant and living and just a letter from Paul to a new church. And by being those things, it eventually became sacred. And so I'm hoping that over the next four weeks, it will again become real and relevant and living for us and in that way become sacred again. It's a letter of introduction that Paul writes to one of the hatchling communities who has heard the story of Jesus and finds that that story begins to do something in the life of their church and not just abstract things. The story of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus begins to make a difference in the life of Titus, who becomes more patient and less angry and is willing to hear people out and in the life of Rachel, who is now opening her home to people left and right, every week, that maybe she would normally never invite into her house. I don't know. I made Titus and Rachel up. But things like that are actually happening. People's lives are looking different. The fruit of the gospel is being born, and it actually means something. They find themselves surprised by what the life of Christ is doing in their midst. Colossae was one of those forgotten towns in the wool belt, maybe like a town in the rust belt in the United States. It used to be sort of a hub for transportation, but the trade route just a a decade or two earlier had moved north to Laodicea, so no one really came through Colossae anymore. Hierapolis was another town nearby that kind of took it over, exceeded it in population. Its heyday was behind it, but if you were in the sheep game, you were still invested in Colossae because the hills and the pastures near Colossae were some of the best for sheep herders. And so the wool industry was robust around Colossae and the Lycus River ran around it and left deposits of chalk that would have been perfect for dyeing wool. 
So that's the industry that's in Colossae. That's what people do. And it used to be more of a trade route, but now it's kind of a dwindling, shrinking town. A man named Epaphras. And we don't really know much about Epaphras, but he's the one who carried the story of Jesus and probably the story of Paul and his incredible conversion. Maybe some stories about Peter and the early church's miracles. Epaphras is the one who brings the story of Jesus and the hope, our text says, to the people of Colossae. And something in between telling those stories, the preaching of Epaphras, led to a collection of people gathering around the good news of God's redemptive promise. So Paul writes to them, Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers, in our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul writes for a couple different reasons. One, like in many of his letters, he's writing to clear something up that there's been confusion about. There's been confusion in the community about how to live into Christ now that they've heard the story. And there are some other teachers who are um, encouraging worship of angels, we gather from the text. Paul says they are, quote, puffed up about visions without reason. Some teachers are adding things to the story of Jesus that are superfluous to the Christian life. Um, but it would be really difficult for the Colossians to know that they couldn't trust these teachers. There's no Google, there are no books, there are no, there's, there's, there's no resources at their disposal to discern, you know, is this someone like Paul is aligned with? Does it matter if they're aligned with Paul? Who do we listen to? So Paul is writing to the Colossians to clear some of these up, things up, and we, we know that partly because he starts the letter by introducing himself not as a servant of God, which is often how he addresses himself, um, but as an apostle of God. Uh, apostle was a title that carried significant authority for the early church. It put him on par with Peter and James and John and the other early disciples. He wants to make sure they know that he comes with some authority, But he says also that he's an apostle not by his own will, but by God's will. Paul's will, 
as we know from the story in Acts, Paul's will was to chase down Christians and to um, attempt to have them stoned and to stop them from teaching. That was, that was Paul's plan for his life. And God's will was to interrupt that plan and have Paul become the great apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul makes a point of um, emphasizing that often when he writes to people, saying, reminding them of his story, saying, my plan was not to be writing this sort of letter to you. My plan was to be persecuting you. But God, uh, in a vision, turned my life around. So Paul comes as an apostle, not by his own will, but by God's will. But Paul also writes to the Colossians to introduce himself because he's never met the Colossians. Maybe you knew that. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe that's obvious. Maybe I knew that from some seminary class I had. Um, But that fact really struck me this week. Paul had never met the Colossians. He had never been to Colossae. Paul's figure looms so large in the New Testament that often you get the sense that Peter and Paul were such charismatic and strong-headed leaders that between their compelling stories and their entrepreneurship, they were able to start a whole lot of churches. But Paul had never been to Colossae. Someone else had come telling his version of the story of Jesus. And that story bore the exact same fruit. It bore fruit that looked and tasted and felt like the same fruit that was being born in the Galatian church and the Corinthian church, the churches that were more Paul's churches. And so you hear Paul affirming so many of the exact same things that he affirms in the Corinthians and the Galatians, and he affirms those things to the Colossians. And that continuity really struck me this week. The continuity of God's Spirit struck me this week. It probably shouldn't have. Maybe shame on me. It probably shouldn't have surprised me. Of course the early churches resembled each other because the gospel bears the same fruit wherever it is planted. It always bears the fruit of the Spirit. The same Spirit's not going to bear different things. If it's Christ's Spirit, then it's going to bear the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The story of Christ is always the story of the crucified Christ. And so it's always going to follow that pattern. Maybe, maybe it was so surprising to me because so many churches don't bear that pattern or don't seem to, that the Christian church at large on a macro level doesn't seem to be bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe that's why it was so surprising to me. I found it surprising and oddly encouraging that, the, that Paul hadn't been to Colossae yet but that that church still had the signature marks of the Holy Spirit. But it shouldn't have surprised me because Christ was the head of that church just like Christ was the head of every other church. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of Colossians. Colossians is often called the most Christocentric book in the New Testament. The most Christ-centered book in the New Testament because almost, almost every verse is somehow connected to a reference to Christ. The entire theology and writing is centered around the identity of Jesus in a particular way that a lot of the other books, they're all, they're all Christ-centered in some sense. It's not like the other books like, aren't talking about Jesus. But Colossians, in a particular way, is interested in, in, in the identi- 
identity of Jesus as the Christ and how that informs the rest of the life of the church. And so the way that Paul is going to instruct the Colossians regarding false teachers is by helping them understand more and more who Christ is. The way Paul is going to advise them on ethical matters is by telling them more about who Christ is. The way that Paul is going to encourage them and give them hope is by telling them more about who Christ is. The way that Paul is going to help them see beyond the persecutions and sufferings that they're enduring is by telling them about who Christ is. In regards to people coming and teaching about the angels and principalities that Jesus doesn't have power over, Paul writes about Christ. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All things were created by him and through him and for him. Things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. To the aristocracy that told the Colossians that they were fools without wisdom because many of them were from the lower class. Paul writes about Christ. Quote, be encouraged in heart and united in love in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. When some told the Colossians that they needed to follow the Jewish laws, namely circumcision, Paul tells them about Christ. In him you were circumcised, not with human hands, but your whole flesh was changed when you were buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him. When arguments about divisive identity issues arose in the early church, I mean, the, the, the Jew... Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave or free, the same passage that's in Galatians is pretty much word for word here again in Colossians. Paul says, remember Christ who is all and is in all. When someone does wrong by you, forgive as Christ forgave you. Husbands and wives, love as Christ has loved the church. Children, obey as Christ obeyed. Fathers, image Christ in your fatherhood. Whatever you are doing, It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Christ is the center and the head, the root of each fledgling church. And that's why the fruit that they bear is the same love in the Spirit, which causes the poor to be treated with dignity, which causes the hopeless to be given new hope, and causes the sort of equality among image bearers that results in difficult conversations about the old distinctions that used to categorize people. Paul didn't start this church, but he didn't have to. Paul wasn't causing churches to grow and bear fruit. It was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the living Christ, who is at work bearing good work in the lives of small communities all over the Roman countryside. And that's encouraging. I was struck by the continuity of God's Spirit bearing fruit in the early church, and I'm struck by the continuity today. And if you are skeptical and say, what fruit? That is justified. I'm skeptical too. Yeah, sometimes when you work in the church, you're more skeptical, and it's really easy to be cynical. And it's... It really takes a lot of work to trust that um, that is God that bears fruit and not you. But it's such good news. But what fruit is the Christian church bearing in the world today? The polls show that Christians are often the least likely to welcome the refugee and the immigrant. Christians are often the ones who clamor to bomb our enemies rather than to pray for them. 
Christians often score as least generous to certain kinds of giving. Christianity so often seems to be at the root of racism and sexism and homophobia. Christians so often do not look like they are branches whose vine is Christ. I thought of that Gandhi quote. I love your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. The church has, unfortunately, given people enough reason to give up on her, and sometimes by proxy on Christ as well. Thanks be to God, Christ hasn't let that be the final word. And I've had the fortunate opportunity as a pastor to get to have some of the most encouraging conversations in the last year and over the years about seeing fruit being born in the lives of people, fruit that has continuity with the church in Colossians. I think of the benefit that we had a few years ago where we had an opportunity to hear some of those stories of how in the life of the church we've gotten to see how Christ has held us together in the same way that Christ holds the Colossians. We've gotten to see how the fruits of patience and grace, the fruits of love and joy have been borne out in the life of our community. And so I haven't given up hope on the church or on Christ continuing to bear that fruit through us. The same experience of grace and hope that the Colossians had is echoed in so many of the stories of the people who come here. And you might try to trace it back to Bob or to me or to James in the beginning or any number of people whose fingerprints are on this community. And those fingerprints have certainly been the instruments of the gospel but the continuity of God's grace bearing fruit can only be traced back to the head, which is Christ. And when we've walked alongside of the grieving, it is the crucified hands of Christ that lead us. And when we've uncorked wine to celebrate, it is Christ the victor who leads the celebration. And when we've stepped into difficult and divisive conversations, it is Christ who has held us together. And when someone comes and hears, maybe for the first time, that God loves them without caveats, it is because Christ has said it first. And that's why we center our service around communion in the hope that the life, death, and resurrection and the very spirit of Christ will be the center of our service. Whatever joy or sorrow you face this week, Christ has already met it. If you're on vacation this week, if you're getting some summer rest in your hiking trails and watching sunsets, Christ is the firstborn of creation. If you are walking through grief this week, Christ grieves with you. If you're experiencing conflict or are tempted to hate your enemies, Christ has died for them. Christ is all and is in all. And as we center our lives around his the same fruit that was born in the early church will be born again in us. And that's our prayer this morning. Will you pray with me? Oh Christ, our head, we pray that we would image you well as you are the image of God, the icon of God. And when we look at you, we see what the creator is like. I pray that this week, you would help us to image you so that people who interact with us, experience us, encounter us as we go throughout the week would recognize in us 
the image of the, the crucified and risen Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.